Welcome to the Red Dice Diaries with John and Hannah. We're going to be cracking open the post bag and answering some of your voicemails. And our first voicemail is from that cheeky chappy Goblin's Henchman. Take it away. Hi Hannah. Hi John. Goblin's Henchman here. I thought I'd just leave a message about the most recent uh, voice message episode. Uh, so yeah, interesting messages there. Um, two things occurred to me. One was that uh, I think, uh, for example, um, Spencer talked about too much character background. Um, I sometimes think character background, too much character backgrounds, is a bit like player railroading because their background, especially a lengthy one, is trying to impose a dialogue on the where the where the situ where the adventure is going and uh, if you ignore it then you're sort of not doing service to that person's background but obviously if they do too much then they're sort of uh, taking that too far away and then the other thing is i think hannah talked about generating a you know all the, like a session zero where you all generate something together um one of the things i've made sorry i feel like i plug my stuff too much but i like to, <laughs> i like to share my ideas what can i say um is uh you remember the game Consequences? You probably played as a kid where you all fold a bit of paper and you write a line and pass it around and then you read the amusing story at the end. Well, I had an idea of, uh, it's on my drive through page, about doing that but for session zero backgrounds. So everyone kind of takes a turn writing a sort of appropriately sort of crafted sentence and at the end you find out what your character background is and, you know, hopefully there's a secret that you can keep to yourself just to reveal later in play. Anyway, just an idea. Um, thanks for the show. Cheerio. Hey Goblins Henchman, thank you very much for leaving us a voicemail. And yeah, I've got to say, I do agree to a certain extent. I can see how like GMs could feel under pressure if they're given a lot of big backgrounds to actually include all of that stuff in the game. But obviously you're not under any onus to actually do so. If I get big backgrounds from people, I always at least try and sort of skim through them, but make it clear, like, I'm probably not going to get around to including all of this. So I think if the players are, are fine with that, it's not such a big deal, to be honest. Like I say, I'm not the world's biggest fan of massive backgrounds, but it doesn't do any harm at the end of the day, as long as I'm not expected to memorise it and include it all in the game, because that's just not going to happen. The idea of doing a group background gen with the consequences game for like I, I quite like that idea I'm not sure if you intended it to be like everybody gets a piece of paper and it gets passed around the room but I really like that idea for a sort of politicking type game because yeah, that yeah. way everybody knows one secret about each of the other players that you're politicking because they came up with it for you but part of the game would be like finding out the other stuff yeah yeah i'm proper nicking that cheers so thank you very much for that and it looks like goblin's henchman has got some more to say this time on the subject of barroom hex flowers hi john hi hannah it's goblin's henchman here so i really enjoyed listening to your um episode about the barber all using hex flowers i mean that's probably no no surprise i enjoyed it um but I think what you demonstrated brilliantly, first of all, I thought you explained it very well, actually. Um, I struggle to explain it sometimes because probably it's a bit too much in my sort of... Uh, I'm too close to it. <laughs> um, but I thought what you demonstrated brilliantly was that how with a, a bit of a... With a concept in mind um, and a few ideas, how, easily it is, how easy it is to potentially put together a, a very serviceable um, little mini game like that. Um, so... 
you know, brilliant, good stuff. Um, the only thing I noticed on your website I, I would be tempted to just tweak is that I don't think you, you added about the edge rules. What happens if you go off the hex? I mean, it's not a sort of deal breaker. I mean, I understood it implicitly, and I'm sure people who are familiar with hex flowers would understand that too. But maybe someone new to it wouldn't realise that if you go off the edge of the hex, you rejoin on a on the opposite edge, um, you know, the opposite column or the opposite um, row, as it were. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Goblin's Henchman. That was a bit of an omission as we were sort of trying to get that post out. I have since gone back and amended the post on our blog where it's got the, the sort of printout and the slightly neatened up version of the, the hex flower to specifically show what happens if you go off the edge of the hex flower and to provide a clear example for that. So thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. Cheers. I certainly don't think the hex flower needs any tweaking really actually, but um, because I have a complicated brain and and kind of immersed in these things a little bit too deeply, the only thing I thought would be maybe neat is, for example, when you, you know, the person gets the, you know, the, their adventuring team gets thrown out the window or door or whatever maybe you can do a random roll and determine who was thrown out and then offer that uh, that pc the choice to abandon their friends <laughs> might add an interesting dynamic you know if they're getting whooped you might think one you know the maybe the magic user legs it hoping to help his friends later um and um the only other thing is uh, quite often when i do these hex flowers i i don't return to the central hex unless you roll it and sometimes in that central hex i put in a wild card element so if you get back to the central hex you know then you roll say for example a d6 and pick off a new table of random events so i'm not sure what i do in a bar brawl so maybe someone knocks over a lantern starts a fire i don't know fall through the floorboards um if you uh, i think the city watch where it is is a really good finish but you know you can imagine you know maybe some wild magic goes off somehow you know i don't know but as I said, I think actually the way you've done it um, is great because it's, uh, as you say, completely um, agnostic. So if you put in magic user, you know, spells go off, then you're starting to, you're already poking into a niche. Um, and again, something that might be a bit niche is I was thinking, you know, yes, one point per character is a really, really good idea because then, you know, it, it limits it quite, you know, in a significant, you know, in a, in a simple and significant way. The only thing you could do, and again, this is possibly steering it away from an agnostic system is characters with high constitution like that barbarian with 18 constitution you know in AD&D he would have plus three con bonus you know whether or not those plus threes <laughs> go into the mix um you know you can imagine that maybe that barbarian just goes and goes and goes because he's so tough it's not hit points it's just raw toughness um but again um this is just me applying my overly complicated brain to things because i think what's as i said i think what's really great about what you demonstrated is how you can generate a very uh, very good and entertaining uh, hex flower um quickly and making it serviceable but yes the play testing was definitely really interesting and that's you know from my point of view was the bit that i obviously fascinated by because as a person who writes and sort of if you like designs these things i um i'm interested in how they how, how people do it or would do it so having a little having, having a little look at how you did that was you know, most interesting and also, from my point of view, entertaining. So bravo, and um, hopefully uh, people out there will get some use out of it. And if anyone, I'll be listening to a follow-up episode if people have comments. Um, okay, cheers, and, and thanks for uh, considering using it, because uh, I think it's a great little little uh, way of 
generating these little mini games. Um, so I'm pleased that you thought to try it because I, I have to say, I'm not sure I had ever thought of a, a bar crawl using Hexflower. So I was really, really pleased to see how you um, you did that. Anyway, I'm, I'm going long here. So cheers, bye. Thanks, Goblin's Henchman. We've really enjoyed doing the bar brawl Hexflower thing. And I think it might be something to play with again at another point. Um, I'd certainly like to. Oh, yeah, it was very entertaining today. Just to acknowledge why we had the very, very simplified rules, the theory was that your magic users wouldn't be capable of using their magic and your, like, superior fighters wouldn't be all that superior because everyone's smashed, it's a bar brawl, and thus everybody's reduced to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, there was also the fact that, like, the bar room brawl is, like... uh, a more chaotic and enclosed mm-hmm. and sort of scrappy environment than your traditional combat. Now, obviously, we know that despite the fact that it's represented by like static tokens and whatever, we know that a combat represents people moving around. But you're not like in a cave with some goblins or whatever. It's like a room heaving with people, furniture in the way, obstructions, stuff like that, improvised weaponry. So the way me and Hannah were thinking about it is neither the spellcasters nor any other classes would really be at their optimal performance in a barroom situation. That's one of the reasons we wanted to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. But yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, we really did enjoy doing it and I'm sort of hoping John will maybe do some more with me at some point. Yeah, I'm sure we will get (laughs) round to doing some further hex flowers in the future, so keep an eye out for that. Right, let's see who we've got next out of the old post bag. Hey, Hannah and John, this is Jason. Just want to say I enjoyed your latest listener calling episode. Backgrounds, I pretty much agree with what Hannah said and what Spencer said. I'm not a big fan of deep individual backgrounds before the game ever starts, but I do like the idea of group backgrounds and the bonds and the connections the characters have to each other. And I think there's a lot of value in that, but it takes everybody sitting there together to do that. So I, I don't like it when one character monopolizes it or one player monopolizes it. I, I like it when everybody works together on that. The other thing I wanted to mention was Everway. You mentioned that. Pretty sure Dave Aldrich has a complete set of that, and he's a big fan of that system. So if you guys ever want to play, you may want to reach out to your fellow Purple Warmer there. So anyhow, talk to you later. Hey there, Jason. Thank you very much for the call-in. And yeah, I've got to say, I pretty much agree with you about the character backgrounds. I would far prefer to have everyone get together be bouncing ideas off each other, throwing things into that big old melting pot and coming up with something between yourselves rather mm-hmm. than everyone going away separately coming up with their own character backgrounds then the GM having to like gaffer tape them all together into something that if you squint resembles a coherent mm-hmm. whole. It's the same reason I prefer to have a session zero where people are genning characters together because you bounce ideas off each other and you may come up with something as a group that you might not have done individually. So that is by far my preference, although I appreciate it's not always possible to get everyone together for that. That's also a particularly nice feature of Dungeon World, where you're not just coming up with the character backgrounds to fit the campaign world, you're coming up with the campaign world to fit the character backgrounds to some degree as well. Yeah, you're building from the sort of ground up rather than sort of the top down, aren't you? Yeah, that can work quite nicely. I've got to admit, when it comes to Everway, I wasn't particularly a big fan of the system, 
Although I quite like the tarot cards. I thought they were good as like, I know they're not proper tarot cards, but you know what I mean. I thought they were quite good as a sort of visual aid and I'd love to incorporate them into other games, but I'm not really mm -hmm. a massive fan of the rules themselves. Although to be fair, I've not really had a chance to play it. So, you know. I, I must admit, I think I've got a lot more use out of the Everway cards at LARP as tarot cards. Yeah, yeah. When I've been pretending to be a fortune teller, because they've got those nice little prompts on that make it super easy. Yeah. Compared to actually playing Everway, I, I think I've probably played it once, maybe twice, I'd way back in high school when we bought it from, like, the bargain bin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'd love to give it a go at some point if somebody happens to be running a game. Yeah. But it, it's one of those things where you sort of put it on your list and it'd be nice, but it's not yeah. like you sort of it, it's not like a deal breaker if you know what I mean. I do still like some of those mechanics for the yeah, yeah. character gen system. Yeah. And it's obviously stuck with me for a while cuz like that was 20 odd years ago. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, that's the thing about it being very visual, isn't it? It does stick with you a bit more. Indeed. Anyway, thank you very much for that, Jason. I think he's got some more to say. Hey, Hannah and John, Jason here. Just want to say I really enjoyed your Barroom Brawl Hex Flower episode. Great job. Thank you so much. Couldn't be more pleased. As soon as I have a chance, I'll hop on your blog and see what you have up there, and I'll play with it. In, but, yeah, wonderful job. Great. By the way, I thought you'd appreciate I'm driving down the road. So I'm sure you've seen in TV shows or whatever. Here in America, we have personalized license plates. So you have your license plate on your car, and you can get all kind. You can pay money to get all kinds of fancy license plates. You can get custom word instead of the numbers that they assign you. You could get custom words in there. You can put your last name there. You can put all kinds of funny phrases on there. You can get symbols put on there. So you can get like your college or your sports team or whatever. Well, anyway, I just passed one. That had NASA, the NASA symbol on it, you know, the space agency, and then the customized wording on the plate was aliens. So thought I'd share that with you. Anyhow, I'll talk to you later. Hey, Jason, glad you enjoyed the barroom brawl thing, and thank you for your amusing story about the customized number plates. Yeah, we've got them over here in the UK, although it sounds like yours are maybe a little bit more free form than ours. There's some like, strict limits on what you can have here. I don't know what they are because, to be honest, the idea of paying over the odds for a number plate has never really appealed to me. But thank you very much. Now let's see what else Jason's got to say. Hey, Hannah and John, this is Jason. Enjoy the latest episode, talking about inventories. I always like the idea of the quantum backpack where everybody has a backpack and has six undefined items. Or, you know, I know Spike Pick's done it in the past, Colin's done in the past with a random number of items. This is something you see in Maze Rats uh, and Nave. But basically, you have either six items or a random number of items. And, you know, whenever they want to pull something out of the backpack, they have it. And that takes up one of those slots. You know, it just has to be mundane items. But basically, I have six undefined items. Hey, I want a 10-foot pull. Okay, right down your sheet. That's one of your six items. And that way, you're not shopping. But, you know, you're still kind of keeping them from having everything. Yeah, that is a really good idea and a really good compromise. Oh, yeah, definitely. Between having the like endless searching for items and strictly defined inventory and just having complete free range it it's a nice compromise and it i can see how that really speeds a game along 
very similar to the system used in Scum, Scum and Villainy. Villainy. Yeah, and Band of Blades, yeah. yeah. Where you, you get a certain amount of load, as it's called, and you can take effectively like a number of items. Now, they're a bit more restricted in Scum and Villainy and Band of Blades because you have like a list of stuff you can select from that's themed around your character, but it's very much the same mm-hmm. idea. Once you've defined something, that's what it is, and you're stuck with that for the rest of the mission or whatever. But until you define it, certainly in Scum and Villainy, or that you have to select stuff pre-mission in Band of Blades, once you've defined something, that's what it is for the rest of the mission. But until then, it's a bit more sort of up in the air and loosely defined. And as Hannah was saying, I think that's a really good compromise between having to do all the shopping, but also not just being able to like pull whatever you want out of your backside. Yeah. Um, and if you do your Star Trek thing and your Star Trek technology thing, I really look forward to that. I think that'd be a fun episode. And I hope you discuss, and I know I mentioned this to John before, the idea that, you know, when Transporter, when you use the Transporter, it actually kills you and that's your clone, that pop, your soulless clone that pops out on the other side. Like to hear the, you know, talk about that. Talk to you later. Yeah, so I'm sure we will do a little bit more talking about sort of sci-fi technology in Star Trek tech and stuff like that however for a slightly more detailed answer i'm going to turn over to our resident track expert hannah and let her answer what she thinks about the whole sort of transporter thing while i kick back and have a refreshing brew i suppose it depends on whether or not a catra is a soul because obviously spock's catra exists after he's been transported because otherwise he couldn't have put it into dr mccoy and have it then returned to his new body in that weird, confusing way via the Genesis device that I never really quite understood. But anyhow... It all got a bit biblical, didn't it? It kind of did. I, I'm I'm undecided on the transporter thing. I, I think personally that it's one of those things in track where it's a technology that serves the needs of the plot at whatever Indeed. particular time because we've had the bits where like Barclay being like stuck in the um, the transporter beam and people it's like, being aware of yeah, being it's in like, the transporter if, if it just beam. disintegrated you wouldn't be aware of being in it yeah. but then at other times it seemed more like you do get disintegrated so I think that I think to be honest with a bit of a sort of nod and a wink they just use it for like whatever <laughs> plot requirement they have for that particular episode but I'm sure we will get round to talking about that a bit more in future Jason so thank you very much for that call in right let's see who we've got next in the post bag uh, hi John it's Rob trying again uh, last call didn't work uh, regarding inventories I pretty much agree with you across the board on what you said uh, you know let's let's keep it simple and straightforward and let's not waste a lot of time shopping um, that said a uh, couple couple of simple things one is uh, for games I especially fantasy games I tend to simplify it by ruling you're allowed two large weapons, one ranged weapon, and one small weapon, in addition to backpack and, you know, all the other stuff. But that's that's kind of it for the amount of combat-related gear you can carry. Um, the other thing I was going to say was regarding encumbrance and tracking, again, most of the time I agree it's more annoying than it's worth. But it can be fun if you're doing a campaign where it's players versus environment, like a long trek across a desert or through an Arctic uh, environment where food and rations and things like that can really uh, mean the difference between life and death. Anyway, that's it. Enjoying the podcast. Take care, uh, John and Hannah. 
Right. Hey there, Rob. Thank you very much for taking the time to leave that message again. I know the first one you left didn't come through okay, so I really do appreciate you taking the time to leave the message again. Yeah, I pretty much agree with you when it comes to inventories. I'm not a big fan of the whole like massive amount of shopping for equipment, but also I kind of like to let the players have at least some choice and mm-hmm. make a little bit of preparation because that's part of the whole dungeoneering thing. You know, make sure you've got the 10 foot pole, the lamps, and stuff like that, your rations if you're going traveling. And I think, to be honest, which as I think what you've been saying in your. Um, your message is that it sort of depends on the focus of the game really because as you were saying if the the game was like focused on like oh you're exploring a desert region then obviously your inventory becomes vastly more important you've got to track your rations your water you might not be able to replace goods that got damaged or lost so i think it's just a matter of sort of measuring what your player party are interested in and what's the sort of focus of your game but I think certainly for a, a traditional sort of pseudo-medieval D&D style game, the minutiae and inventory of shopping experiences are really not required. Mm-hmm. As you were saying about uh, load for weapons and like limiting basically how many yeah, weapons like people a, can go to. You can have with. a certain amount of weapons, yeah. Again, I've been LARPing quite a lot over the last few years. I'm missing it a bit at the moment. It is great fun to see those people who've got really tooled up and they've got six axes and 12 swords and 50 daggers strapped to them and they can barely move for weapons and to see how quickly they get put down on the battlefield by a lass with a single sword because she can move faster than they can. That, that was why it made me laugh in the, um, the recent Band of Blades session when... Um, we were talking about like what weapons we've had. And in Band of Blades, it might just say you've got a weapon. It doesn't define it. And um, we were all on horseback going to do this mission. And if you remember, Matthew was like, oh, I might give my character a pole arm. And we were all like, you are not carrying a pole arm on like horseback. <laughs> and like charging into combat, that is not happening. Spear, lance, pole arm, giant axe thing on a pole. Anyway, thank you very much for leaving your message, Rob. Let's see who else we've got. What's up, you two? I finally figured out how to use SpeakPipe, so here we go. Uh, great, <laughs> great episode. I loved it. That was so much fun talking about uh, stat distribution. And yeah, Hannah, that was you were right on the money on that one. While it's not a perfect analogy, uh, stat dri- distribution in terms of wealth redistribution, it's a hell of a lot closer than initiative. So good for you. That was awesome. Uh, I have a minute and a half, and I don't have a minute and a half worth of stuff to say. So anyway, super fun episode. I loved it. That's the brilliance of having two people on one show. You get that cool back and forth. Awesome points on both sides. Great stuff. Peace out. That was Joe Richter there from the Hindsightless podcast. Thank you very much for leaving us a message, Joe. We're glad you're enjoying the episodes. And we're enjoying doing them, aren't we, to be mm. honest? It's, it's really nice, as you were saying, Joe, to, to have both myself and Hannah here so we can bounce ideas off each other and we can give these opposing viewpoints. Yeah. Even when we're sort of disagreeing with each other on the air, it means that the people who are listening are getting both mm-hmm. viewpoints and you as the listener can make up your own mind like which viewpoint you prefer rather than just listening to one viewpoint from me or one viewpoint from Hannah. Indeed. And to be fair, it's probably the like closest thing we've had to a major argument over the last three months. 
Yeah, and, and to be honest, I think during our marriage, if like the worst we can say is like we got a bit heated when we we're discussing D and D stat distribution, then we're doing pretty well, all told. Yeah, I do think it's one of the benefits for us that we have like debates about things like this, and it means we don't end up arguing about other stuff. Yeah, so. and, I, and I mean, for, for us, I mean, obviously we're both role players. I mean, we, we don't game together a massive amount because we have like different tastes in RPGs, mm-hmm. but we're both gamers so we both talk about this stuff normally so having hannah join me on the podcast has been just really like an extension of the conversations and discussions we have anyway and sometimes we yeah it gets a bit heated because we're both passionate about the hobby obviously we are but in the same way as like when people are talking about things online i always try and get across the idea of like yeah you're just having a discussion if someone else disagrees with you it's not the end of the world in the same way, me and Hannah can get quite heated in a conversation, but there's no like ill feelings about it afterwards mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, it's a conversation about gaming. It's not a life or death situation. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much, Joe. Glad you're enjoying the episodes. Now, if only I could remember the name of that shape-shifting wizard out of Krull that we were talking about in a recent episode. Yes, John, you're thinking of Ergo the Magnificent from the movie Krull. Thanks very much there. That was, of course, Jason Connolly from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast reminding me of the name Ergo the Magnificent from Krull. Much appreciated. Oh, and what's this? I think we've got another message from Rob Davis. Hello, uh, John and Hannah. I was just listening to your podcast on uh, care, uh, stat creation. Um, uh, apologies, John. I'm 100% in camp. Hannah, I uh, I hate randomness in uh, character creation in any game. And not just with stats. Some games have you roll for backgrounds or other things. Look, give me a list. Let me choose. Um, I guess it stems from a maybe a warped sensibility that everyone starts at the same line. No one gets a head start because of a lucky set of six rolls. And I don't, anyway, I, I just think it's, it's more fair. And you could say that the randomness, everybody could be equally lucky or unlucky, but I don't even if I have the high stats, I don't want someone else with low stats. Everybody starts the same point by all the way. Um, randomness can start when the campaign starts. Until then, I would rather you give players full control. Again, it's like you said, John, it's whatever you like. And if everyone's in agreement, it's all good. Enjoying the podcast. Thanks. Bye. How very dare you, Rob, agreeing with (laughs) Hannah over me. No, I'm just playing, man. Thank you very much for the message. And yeah, like you say, different strokes for different folks at the end of the day. I mean, as we were saying in that episode, Glove, it's down to what you and your group and your game needs for a particular... You see, the way I see it, you've already got a random bunch of players who've got random different levels of ability in maths, reading and role-playing in general. And you're going to have to deal with those challenges, so why not just start out with a level playing field as far as the stats go? But that's just me. Yeah, and I, and I can certainly see the, the logic of that, and I think... I, I like to be in control where I can. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Reduce I, I, arguments where possible. Well, yeah, I mean, as we said in the original episode, I can certainly see the logic of that, depending on what type of game you get. However, for me personally, the the game starts when you start joining your character... So 
I see like the random character genesis like another exciting bit of the game, you know, the anticipation. What stats am I going to get? What sort of character am I going to be able to create from that? But I you can know, also I, see the I reverse think the side. The main reason for this, John, is that you don't get attached to your characters and you rarely play them for more than like half a campaign. I, I've got to admit, I, I do wonder whether part of my love of random character gen is because you I so rarely get to be an actual player. I'm normally a GM. True. And it's like when I do tend to be a player, it's in like one shots or shorter games or something like Band of Blades where a lot of the characters defined for you. So I, I very seldom get to play in a game where someone's like, oh, just gen a character. So I think for me, as Hannah said, I have a certain amount of detachment from my characters, which leads to me not being as bothered if they're not exactly what I want. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Rob, as is Hannah. It depends what you want, what your group want, what your game needs. And as long as everyone's happy with whatever method you've chosen, that's great. Who am I to say that? So thank you very much for your message. Greetings, John and Hannah. This random table. What about because magic? Surely you've got to have because magic. (laughs) Nice one. Catch you later. Take it easy. Absolutely. I completely agree. And when we put it in a science fiction version of the table, it needs to read, because science. Cheers, Colin. Hey, Hannah and John. Really great episode on equipment. I loved it. I especially love when you brought up Isaac Arthur, one of my favorite channels on YouTube. I watch that religiously. There's another fella that does similar videos that are equally as awesome. His name is... Uh, I think it's John Michael Godier. I don't know how to actually say it. My phone says it weird. He's got a channel that goes by his name and then another one called Event Horizon where he interviews super smart folks. It's a great channel. So if you like Isaac Arthur, maybe check that one out too. And then, yeah, uh, John asked how often in movies do you see the heroes going in to a store or whatever and equipping themselves, stocking up and everything. And I would say in 80s action movies, almost in every single one of them. <laughs> Those are my favorite scenes from 80s action movies is when the hero goes in and they're strapping up all their guns and checking their ammo belts and all that shit. I love it. Anyway, you two are awesome. Peace out. There's also quite a few cool shopping scenes in Avatar The Last Airbender. Cheers for that, Joe. Yeah, see, my thing about these um, the, the sort of um, shopping scenes that you tend to see where the, the hero is tooling up is they're quite often done as a montage. Mm-hmm. And I agree, yeah, that can be really interesting and really exciting. Get some like 80s power chords going in the background, lovely. Uh, however, that does not tend to drag on like a shopping scene <laughs> in a game can. I mean, it's the difference between like seeing like Conan like polishing his sword and maybe like grabbing some armour off his shelf than having a player be like, oh, so... So do I get like a discount if I buy like 50 candles from this shop? Oh, how many gold pieces does that breastplate cost? Or can I get some extra ornamentation put on it for like an additional cost? The shopping scene in a role-playing game does not tend to be as exciting as the tooling up montage in an action film. Not saying that's always the case. I mean, maybe better GMs than me can make such scenes really exciting, but I've never seen it. I will say for the shopping scene is it's an excellent thing to put in if suddenly a player character needs to leave the room for a short while while you're in the market. You do a shopping scene, you keep everybody else in character while he goes and does his phone call or nips down to the shop or whatever. He can come back in and you're back to the session and you've not lost the rhythm for the rest of the player characters. 
It's got its uses. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Thank you very much for that call, Joe. Now, I think we've got a last couple from Jason here. Hey, Han and John. This message is mainly for John because he very rudely recorded an episode without Han present. So I just wanted to say as far as building campaign worlds and, and developing those and all that kind of thing, I, I do it emergent. I have a general idea in my head, but I tend to develop it as I go. I, I don't map it all out ahead of time. I don't tend to use them in multiple games or, you know, multiple campaigns. So they're pretty much one and done. And then I move on to the next thing. You know, I, I, I tend to run things in a variety of different worlds instead of staying in the same world. I, for inspiration, I'll use, you know, movies, TV, books. I, I don't, I don't necessarily just sit and roll on random charts or things like that. I probably need to start doing that and, and, and get more diligent at building things ahead of time and, you know, better system as far as developing towns and NPCs and all that. I'm getting ready to start a Boot Hill play-by-post game, and I'm going to have to be more diligent with with building the world and having it it ready for that, I guess. But I don't know. It's, yeah, I'm probably a bad example, so you can disregard what I've said. Talk to you later. Thanks very much for the call, Jason. Really appreciate that. I think, yeah, I'm pretty much leaning towards the same idea for whatever my next game is. Like I say, probably old school essentials. I'm very much leaning towards the idea of sort of loosely defining the type of campaign world. Then maybe if I go a bit hex crawl, sort of just doing like the first few hexes around the home base and sort of building up the rest of the world from there emergently as you were saying rather than trying to define it all in advance which is an awful lot of work and i think a lot of it probably doesn't get used anyway sorry sorry what what was that jason you've got something else hey john i inspiration just struck me oh hi hannah how you doing so here's what you do you have each player write a five to ten page backstory and build your world off that there you go money in the bank (laughs) 